This week we went down to the Boston Common and we took a bit of a poll. Just stood there for a while and asked people that passed by, why do you think Jesus came into the world? We'd receive a variety of answers. I think a good number would say, well, he came into the world to, to give us some moral teachings. Or some would say, well, he came into the world that, that he might be a really tremendous example for an upright moral life. Some would say, well, he, he came to primarily start a new religious movement. And many would say, I don't think it matters, or how does it matter? And I wonder how you would answer the question if you were asked that. Why did Jesus come? And how would you answer the second question that they raise? Why does it matter, or does it matter that Jesus came? There are a few places in the Bible where we're told specifically some of the reasons Jesus came. And there are some spots in the Gospels where Jesus himself says, this is why I came. And this morning in our passage, we're going to see one of those, where Jesus himself says, this is part of why he came. We'll see that and why it matters. Why it matters for us and why it matters for all. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 20. Today we're in Matthew 20, starting in verse 17. In the Bibles we've provided near you, you can find it on page 825. Page 825. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, just so you can see the passage in front of you, so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to the Bible, when you open up the larger numbers or the chapter numbers, so we're in chapter 20, the smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 17. We'll work our way to the end of the chapter and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, a sign there that says free Bibles. Please stop by there following the service. Grab one of those Bibles and take it with you as our gift to you today. So Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17, as we continue our series in Matthew. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. 
Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Embrace the unique way of our suffering, serving, merciful Savior. Embrace the way of our suffering, serving, merciful Savior. And we'll see three aspects of this way that he calls us to. First, we'll see suffering. Second, serving. And then third, seeing. So suffering, serving, and seeing. So first we see suffering, verses 17 through 19. We're told that Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem, has a group with him, a broader group of disciples, but among them are his 12 disciples, and he pulls them aside to again predict to him his own suffering and death. He continues using the title for himself, the Son of Man, that he's been using throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's this loaded term in the history of God's people pointing to this powerful, divine one who was to come. Now, Jesus, we've seen in Matthew, has already told them some elements of what was going to happen to him. And he sort of seems to kind of add a little more detail each time. So today he tells them that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, to the religious authorities of that day. That they would condemn him to death and they would hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. He'd be mocked, flogged, crucified, and on the third day, he would rise. So friends, we see again that Jesus knew what his mission was. He knew what was coming in his life, this coming cross and death and resurrection. So I want to be very clear, Jesus knew this. So ultimately, when he is taken and killed, it's not that kind of the events of life got away from him. It's not that he was overtaken by a conspiracy of religious authorities. But this was the very reason why Jesus had come. And it begins in verse 18 by saying, see, or your translation might say, behold, He wanted his disciples to see, to understand, that they might understand what was coming. And even if they didn't understand before the cross, that they might, after the cross and resurrection, be able to look back and hear his words and now understand what he had been preparing them for. For they were coming into this time of great challenge. It would be a very confusing time for them as well. Disciples consistently did not understand what Jesus was saying. Most of them due to the fact because of what they imagined the Messiah to be like. And Jesus increasingly was not looking like that Messiah. Because his kingdom was not turning out the way they had dreamed. But in time, after the cross and resurrection, looking back, they would be able to see more clearly how Jesus had predicted that and had fulfilled it. And we today live on this side of Jesus' cross and resurrection. And we now have all the scriptures that they did not have at the time. And we who are Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, enabling us to see. So friends, we can see the picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do more clearly than ever. Jesus, the Savior, who came intentionally to suffer. He came here to suffer in order that he might save. 
And friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would spend part of your Sunday with us here. And we hope that you'll see that Jesus Christ intentionally came to this earth so that he might suffer. And that through his suffering, he might rescue, deliver, save sinners like you and me. And this also means that Christians have a Savior who's familiar with suffering. So that when we face suffering in this life, and we all will, who better to help us and to comfort us than a Savior who knows suffering? For those who are Christians, we want to continually keep setting the, my, the eyes of our heart on Christ, his cross and his resurrection. So we consistently, with the eyes of faith, look back and remember Christ's life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. For it is in that that we see the ultimate display of God's love for us, God's love for you. It's there that we find hope and forgiveness, new life now, transformation, the hope of eternal life. There we find the very promise of power to live today in this world. So friends, we see that Jesus Christ came to suffer. That's at the very center of his mission. We also need to understand that all who come to trust in Jesus, who trusted him by faith, all of them will also suffer in this life. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you will suffer in this life. We'll see in the next section in a moment how he'll tell two of his disciples, James and John, that they would suffer. And as we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has consistently been telling his disciples and us that all who follow him in this life will at times face opposition, persecution, and suffering. When we look across the entire New Testament, we're told not to be surprised when opposition and suffering come. We're told how to prepare for it and we're sure that Christ is with us by the Spirit in the midst of opposition and persecution and suffering. So friends, our Savior uniquely suffered in our place. But as we follow him, we should anticipate and not be surprised when we face opposition, persecution, suffering in this life. In fact, according to the New Testament, we should be more surprised if we don't face opposition if we don't face persecution and suffering. And when we do face it, we can do so with hope and courage because we have a Savior who knows suffering and empowers us by the Spirit in the midst of it. So he is with us in the opposition. He's working for us through persecution. That is certainly true currently compared to many brothers and sisters in Christ across history and around the world. Our suffering in this country today is to a much lesser degree. So we don't want to misstate what we currently experience here. And we don't want to be like many American Christians who call every difficulty opposition for the sake of Christ, who find persecution under every rock. But it does seem likely in the days ahead that there may be greater opposition and suffering for those who seek to follow Jesus in our society. So if you're a Christian, I wonder how often do you think about that? And do you find yourself tempted sometimes to try to avoid opposition, persecution, suffering for the name of Christ? Now, we're not to seek it out. We're not to be Christians who look for opposition. 
But we'll need to be very careful because most of us have a desire to avoid all opposition, to avoid persecution and suffering. We'll have to be very careful because of that temptation that we wouldn't compromise our faith in the face of it. So I think there are a couple of tempting ways that we might try to avoid opposition. And one of those is to compromise the gospel or to change the very teaching of Jesus when they become controversial. Across church history, we find that in a variety of ways that when difficulty comes, when, when a teaching becomes controversial, the church is prone to compromise that. And the challenge is we, we in general, like to be liked by people. We like to be respected by others. We, we don't like to be thought of as kind of outside of the mainstream. So, so when the teachings of Jesus are outside of that, it's a great temptation to compromise so that we, we don't stick out, so that others don't speak poorly of us, so that we don't face sometimes the great cost of following Jesus. And if we wonder what, what's the, the end of compromise, we can really just look at the history of greater Boston. For centuries ago, Boston was the center of American Christianity. The greatest churches, some of the greatest preachers in the country were here, sending out workers to the globe. But in time, the sort of wind of society turned against faithful Christianity. And sadly, many of the pastors of those churches, they too wanted to be liked and respected. And because the gospel was no longer seen as respectable, a slow, creeping compromise happened. And so many of those churches left the gospel so that now often there's not even a church left. There are beautiful church buildings in Boston that are now condominiums or something else because the church left the gospel. Eventually the church died. Friends, that's a temptation for us. We're naive not to believe that could be a temptation for us individually, that you could face opposition or difficulty on campus or in your family or in the workplace and you'd be tempted to compromise or, or change what you believe the Bible says. But friends, it's also a temptation for this church. We will be tempted to compromise. I'd like to be liked. I don't want to be thought of as a, a bigot. It's a strong temptation. It will always be a temptation. So we'll need a, a church family to gather to say, how do we stay the course, even in the face of the temptation to compromise? But there's another temptation we'll face as well, and that is to withdraw from persecution, opposition. To think I'll, I'll just either remove myself, though physically I'm still near. I just, I just won't associate with anyone outside of my narrowest group of or sometimes Christians literally move and build up, kind of create a, a new parallel community. We'll all move there together. We'll have a church there together. We'll build a more upright, godly society together. But it's happening in America now. Certain parts of the country, many Christians are, are moving there together with an aspiration. They might build this new community together. Now, friends, it is true the New Testament does not call us to run headlong into suffering. It doesn't call us to run headlong into persecution. There's wisdom in that. We see in the book of Acts, sometimes the, the, the followers of Jesus face opposition and they stay. They endure it. Sometimes they say the wisdom is to move to the next town. So there is wisdom involved. But, friends, we are not called to withdraw from the world 
to live in the world as sojourners, shining forth the light of the gospel. The kingdom impulse of Jesus that we see in this gospel and across the Bible is to move into the world, not to pull out of the world. I wonder, is your goal to avoid opposition, persecution, suffering in your life? Or is it to endure suffering like your Savior? To believe he will help you to stay the course. Even if you're a parent, we desire to be a parent. We face the question, are you trying to protect your kids from all suffering? From all opposition? From all persecution? Now certainly parents have a key role of appropriately protecting their children. They should, they must However, there is a temptation that thinks that we can protect them from everything and we end up therefore not preparing them for suffering they will face for the name of Christ. Suffering they will endure as they're opposed for the gospel. So friends, as parents, we want to be wise and careful preparing our kids for life in this world. Our Savior suffered for us and his way includes our suffering. But not only our suffering, also serving so we see second serving in verses 20 through 27. This interesting encounter in verse 20, where of his 12 disciples, two of them, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they and their mother come to Jesus. And the mother of James and John uh, seems to have been well known by Jesus, likely a part of this larger group of disciples that he had. And so she comes and, and has a request for Jesus. Jesus asks of her, verse 21, what do you want? So she says, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Now, for honest, this is a bold request to make. But I know a lot of moms, my mom included, who might take a shot. They, well, yeah, why not? You know, like nobody else has claimed it, so I'm going to ask for my sons. Can they have the two best seats? It's bold in the scan of all of Christian history to think these could be the best two, but that's what she asked for. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let my sons have the two best cabinet positions in your kingdom. That's what they're asking for. Now, they've come to believe, James and John and their mom, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one, that, that his kingdom is breaking in, and they're right about that. But they've not yet grasped, like the disciples, what his kingdom is really like. That his kingdom was not going to be this visible, physical kingdom. He was not about to have a, a throne in Jerusalem. He was not about to throw the Romans off. James and John and their mother still didn't get it. They didn't understand Jesus' kingdom. But what they did display was a powerful ambition for greatness. They wanted Jesus to elevate them. They wanted Jesus to make them great. You see Jesus' response, verse 22. The, re the request came from the mother, but James and John are with them, and, and, and Jesus speaks directly to them, to the sons in his answer. He says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Now the cup that Jesus is referring to is the very wrath of God. 
In the Old Testament, this cup was seen as the judgment of God poured out. Jesus understood that in dying on the cross, he, the perfect, sinless son of God, would bear the wrath of God in the place of those sinners. He was willingly doing that. So he says to the James and John, will you drink it? And notice their, their bold pride. We can do that. It's no problem. We are able. And then Jesus interestingly answers. He says at verse 23, you will drink my cup. But sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus explains to them that they too would suffer for the gospel. We see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, that James was the first apostle who would die, who was martyred for it. John would be exiled for following Jesus. James and John were ambitious it felt fit well in greater Boston. Ambitious for earthly greatness, for their own glory. They were filled with pride. We should notice that pride and longing for greatness is common. It's contagious. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, referring to the other ten disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, why were they indignant at them? is that they were so humble and they were like, how could James and John be so ungodly to ask such a question? No, we see by Jesus' response and his explanation that they were just as prideful. They were just frustrated. They didn't ask. They're like, how did those guys get in front of us? We should have, if if we had known you could ask for that, we would have asked for that. So there's this grumbling going back and forth between them. So James and John were ambitious for earthly greatness, but so were the other 10. All 12 filled with pride. So our kids were growing up in a variety of ways. I would coach their little league teams. And so when our son started baseball, we played, I coached his t-ball team. So this is, you know, really little guys. And in general, it was sheer chaos. So kids that want to run everywhere, they're these metal bats, you know, all sorts of bad things you can have from that. There's sticks around. So most of the time you're spent like, no, put the stick down, come back over here. No, don't go sit by your parents, come back over here. No, run, don't. And so it's this sort of chaos. But then occasionally we'd say, okay, guys, I want you to go right over here and line up. And you know what happened? They would just sprint. And as they would run over there, they, wherever I said, here's the front, that's where they wanted to be. And they would always like jockey for position, pushing the other out of the way because you wanted to be the very first one, even though I had not told them what the line is for. I mean, the line could have been to run laps, but, but they didn't care. They just wanted to be at the front. Whatever it took, push your way to be at the front of the line. Those prideful kids. It's a good thing we're not like that. We never try to push our way to the front of the line, do we? Try to run ahead of others. Isn't that the default position that above all else, we want to be at the front of the line? We're worried someone else might get ahead of us. So what does Jesus have to say about all of this? We see that Jesus redefines true greatness. He teaches the disciples and us what true greatness looks like. So so he speaks of the common understanding in the world of that day, which is really a common understanding in our society as well. Verse 25, Jesus says, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. So Jesus says, This is the normal path of greatness. The one with authority uses that authority over others. 
one at the top, make sure everyone knows they're at the top, and they want those under them to serve them. And the assumption is, well, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? That's why you climb the ladder, so you can make people further down the ladder do what you don't want to do. So if you're the boss, you're the leader, you're the captain, those under you are supposed to serve you. That's what society says. But Jesus says, that may be normal. That may be the common view of greatness. But notice he says, verse 26, it shall not be so among you. So there's this contrast. This is what the world is like. This is what our society is like. But Jesus says, it shall not. It must not be so among my disciples. In the kingdom of Jesus, that's not the way. And so Jesus continues, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So Jesus says, you must not be like the world around you. You must pursue greatness, but in a completely different way. And here we see that Jesus' view of greatness is upside down from the view held out by our society and the world. It's interesting to notice, though, that Jesus doesn't say, don't pursue greatness. We might expect him to say that, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say it's wrong to be ambitious even for greatness. In fact, he urges us to pursue greatness, but it must be a different kind of greatness. And what's the pattern of true greatness? In order to be great, one must take the role of the servant. In order to be first, one must be the slave of all. In the world of that day, this statement would have been shocking. No one who wasn't a servant aspired to be a servant. No one wanted to be a slave. So to be suggested that that's the way up is down. And friend, if we really hear what Jesus is saying, it should be shocking to us as well. None of us desire to be a servant, to be like a slave. And yet that's what Jesus is saying to us. So it's not only don't be like the world. Instead, Jesus holds out a completely different vision for greatness. And this higher vision of greatness is lived out through the lower posture of service. And the fact is, this is a high calling. To resist the natural impulse to climb the ladder, instead to lower ourselves to serve others. And if all Jesus did was teach us this, we would all fail miserably. It would be a crushing burden we couldn't bear. So fortunately, not only did Jesus teach us this, but he did more. For Jesus taught us, and he's the example, and he's the very means of our true sacrificial service. So he came not only to teach us the way, but he came to be the ultimate example and to make it possible. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here Jesus is saying, this is one of the reasons that I've come. This is the very center of my mission. This is why I've come, that I might not be served, but serve. That I might give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying, I'm teaching you a different way, and I'm showing you that different way. For Jesus Christ, the king, he's worthy of our worship and service. But Jesus did not come here that we might serve him. He broke into the world that he might serve us. 
So we must see and feel this glorious weight of the beauty of this. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And who did Jesus come to serve? Rebels. Sinners through and through. People like us who despise Jesus. That's who he came to serve. People who are opposed to him in every way, even the very people who persecuted him, the people who pushed serving, suffering upon him, the people who put him to death, he came to die for people like that. And how did Jesus serve? The pinnacle of his service we see in the text, he gave his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus served sinful rebels like us by giving his life on a cross for us. But you want to notice that Jesus gave it. No one took his life from him. He gave his life. He come to, came to willingly give his life. And he also did it as a substitute. Jesus says, for, for the many, in place of, in the place of as a substitute for the many. Gave his life as a ransom for many. The idea of ransom here is connected with the concept of redemption. Redemption is release upon payment of a price, and the price paid is the ransom. So Jesus paid on the cross through his death the ransom, the payment to redeem sinners like us, that we might be set free from being trapped in our sin. So through Jesus' willing, purposeful, substitutionary death, sinners can experience new life, be reconciled to God, and be forgiven. So friend, you see, Jesus taught true greatness. He demonstrated the perfect picture of greatness. And because of his sacrifice, we can now be empowered by him in our own pursuit of God-glorifying greatness. So we first see the sacrifice of Jesus. We place our faith in him. We, we trust in him. We experience the, the freedom that comes because he paid the ransom. And then he empowers us to pursue the low road of service, to embrace the path of humility. So we truly can pursue and grow and make progress in becoming more and more humble. It's really possible now to, to serve others without worrying about what we might lose if we serve them. Because Jesus has served us perfectly and completely. We can choose to run to the back of the line instead of the front because our identity is in Jesus. Friends, our humble service, importantly, flows from his service. Because he first served us, we now serve others. From that service, we serve. So I wonder in your own life, if you think about where you live, in your dorm, in your apartment, with your housemates, with your family, what would it look like for you to have the mindset of a servant there? Not always thinking about what others should do, what they should do for you, but how you might serve. What would it look like on campus or in your workplace? Take the low path of serving. And in particular, serving those who are lower than you in some way. Serving for them. So it might actually be in their role, but you can choose to do it, to serve. I wonder, do you honestly sometimes consider yourself to be above serving others? 
where I am in the station of life. Like, no, they should do this. I've paid my dues. She should do this. He should do that. Or is it possible, if we're honest, that just serving never even crosses your mind? It's not that you're choosing not to serve. It's like it never even enters your mind. As Christians, we sometimes wonder, what's some of the evidence, some of the fruit that we're growing in maturity? And there are a variety of fruits that we might see and say, that's some evidence that some progress is happening. You know, one sure sign of growth in maturity, willingness to sacrificially serve. We might think of more obvious, flashy evidences, but notice a willing to humble ourselves under others. It's a sure sign, not of complete maturity, but of progress happening in our fight against pride and growth in humility. So many of you in the life of this church serve so freely. It's one of the great joys of being here, seeing how you do that. The past week we were uh, hosting some pastors from around the region, uh, and some of you opened your homes at great cost to yourself to have them stay with you. Some of you came and served during the workshop to serve these pastors. Friday evening there was an event for women. Some of you gave your energy to serve, to make that event possible to love and serve those women. Many of you serve on Sundays, coming early, staying late, behind the scenes. So many ways. Some of you, after the service, when you're like, I would be, you're ready to go home, but you stay longer because you want people to feel loved and connected and welcomed, even though you're kind of out of gas. You stay longer to serve others. And that's valuable kingdom service. So friends, let's pray that God would cultivate in us humility, a servant heart, a passion for true God-glorifying, cross-empowered greatness. If you'd like to do some more thinking on this topic of humility, uh, of servant, uh, there's a new book on the book table uh, called Humility. Uh, it's new because not many people are willing to write a book on humility. Those don't come out very often. You have to be pretty bold to write about humility. But it's a really short and helpful book by a guy named Gavin Ortland. I've read it recently. Very helpful. I would commend it to you. It's there on the book table if you'd like to do some more thinking about that. Jesus came to serve and to empower our service. And then we have the third aspect of his way. So third, we see seeing in verses 29 to 34. Verse 29, a great crowd followed them. There are two blind men sitting by the roadside. We see in verse 30, the two men heard that Jesus was passing by. So they start yelling out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So they see this as an opportunity. Jesus is coming by. Now notice that these men called Jesus the son of David. This is a weighty title, which implies that these men understood more about who Jesus was. They, they're attributing him to be the Messiah by calling him the son of David. These men who are physically blind make this confession, who they believe Jesus to be. And the other people that day could see physically, and yet most of them didn't see. They didn't see who Jesus truly was. The crowd rebuked these men, told them to be quiet, but the men yelled all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. All of a sudden, Jesus stopped. For Jesus is never too busy to show mercy and compassion to those in need. Jesus stops, asks them a question, what do you want me to do for you? 
The men respond, verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. We see Jesus' response, verse 34, and Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered sight and followed him. So Jesus sees the need that these men have. They need mercy. He sees it and he meets the need, giving them life-altering mercy. Now, in this encounter, we see healing, restoration on two levels, the more obvious level of sight, which was a huge thing in that world. To be blind was a guarantee of poverty, tremendously difficult life. So a healing at the physical level was massive. But, but more than that, these men seem to come to trust in Jesus as their king. For we see in the text that they then get up and follow Jesus as a disciple. They don't just stay there. They go with him. These men's lives were changed in every way in an instant. I've been kind of replaying this episode in my mind this week and thinking about, let's say that in each of these men, some of their family weren't there that day. And somebody comes back and like, you're not going to believe what happened. Two things happened. Some of it seems kind of good news, seems kind of bad news. Okay, what's the good news? Well, Joe yelled at Jesus, and Jesus made him see. Joe can see now. That's great. Well, where's Joe? Well, Joe left. He went with Jesus, and now he's like following Jesus as a disciple. So we're, we're happy for Joe, but Joe's gone. We don't know when he's coming back because now he's following Jesus. That's how dramatic this change was in these two blind men's life, to follow Jesus as a disciple. What had these men asked for? Mercy. They didn't cry out, Jesus, give us what we deserve. They knew themselves well. They didn't deserve healing, so they asked for mercy. Don't give us what we deserve. Give us more than that, they prayed. Friends, a cry for mercy always draws the eye of Jesus. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to see that Jesus welcomes you to cry out to him for mercy today. That's what salvation brings, mercy, grace to sinners like us. And these men begin to follow Jesus because they've been changed by his mercy. And friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's where we are as well now. But now in this world, we're called to see people as Jesus sees them. Jesus saw these men and gave them mercy. And we who've experienced the boundless mercy of God, are now scattered into the city day after day, week after week, to see people as those who need mercy. And as we're able to give mercy to them. And friends, that's good news in the midst of a society that is lacking in mercy. We live in a merciless town. So friend, what if you, as you're scattered, you see people, sometimes the, the need of mercy may be more outward and obvious. So often it's not. But friends, there are people all around us who are starving for mercy. Now empowered by the Spirit, friends, we go that we might see them, to see their brokenness, to see their need, and to bring to them the very mercy of Christ. Friends, as we do this, what a privilege it is to join in the mission of Jesus. And as we do this, as we love and serve, as we see people, we'll display more and more of what Jesus' kingdom is like. 
So those around you see, not perfectly, but they see more their need of a Savior and the hope of a Savior as they see your humble service, as they see you see the need for mercy of others. So friends, as we embrace the unique way of suffering, our serving, merciful Savior, we have the chance to hold out the beautiful picture of his alternative kingdom in our homes and in our neighborhoods, on campuses, in our workplace. Let's embrace that together and pray with confidence that Jesus would help us do that increasingly this week.